You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. I'm so pleased to have Dr. David Bentley Hart on this episode of the Grace Saves All podcast. Dr. Hart is a scholar of the highest rank who works in a number of areas, including, but not limited to, ancient cultures, linguistics, history, world religions, biblical studies, theology, philosophy, and consciousness. In his much acclaimed 2019 book, That All Shall Be Saved, Dr. Hart argues that if Christianity is in any way true, Christians dare not doubt the salvation of all. Due to Dr. Hart's scholarly stature and recognition, anyone who now wishes to speak in an an informed way about Christian universalism will have to engage the formidable case he makes for it. Dr. Hart has also produced for Yale University Press the New Testament, a translation. Dr. Hart's translation of the New Testament gets behind the ways many modern translations are influenced by previous doctrinal commitments. His translation also includes a number of informative footnotes as well as a postscript which contains in-depth commentary on several important Greek words and phrases which are relevant to the discussion of eternal destinies. Dr. Hart's translation of the New Testament works as a companion piece to That All Shall Be Saved, and so anyone wishing to understand Dr. Hart's views on universal reconciliation should consult both. Dr. Hart's newest writing project is a weekly newsletter entitled Leaves in the Wind. It can be found online at Substack. For a nominal price, subscribers will be treated to short-form pieces on a wide range of subjects, including, but not limited to, why Frank Robinson was the greatest player in the history of baseball. I encourage everyone to go to Substack.com and subscribe to Leaves in the Wind. I regard David Bentley Hart to be the most consequential modern intellect, and his work, if heeded, has the capacity to restore Christian thinking to the beauty it once reflected in the likes of Gregory of Nyssa. And so, David Bentley Hart, welcome to the Grace Saves All podcast. Um, well, thank you. Uh, <laughs> that might, might I, I, now I have to live up to that introduction, don't I? Uh, so, uh, we'll see. <laughs> okay. Well, Dr. Hart, in that all shall be saved, you make the seriousness, I mean, you have a really good sense of humor, but you also have a very serious side, and you Make your position very clear early on in the book. On page three of the introduction, you state that if Christianity, taken as a whole, is indeed an entirely coherent and credible system of belief, then the universalist understanding of its message is the only one possible. And then you add, and quite imprudently, I say that without the least hesitation or qualification. Then later on in the book, you add something even stronger, stating that the God in whom the majority of Christians throughout history have professed belief appears to be evil. And then at the end of the book, you refuse to back off, writing that you will not wax gracefully disingenuous and declare that I am uncertain in my conclusions, that I offer them only hesitantly, that I entirely understand the views of those that take the opposite side of the argument, and that I fully respect contrary opinions on these matters. So can you tell us, Dr. Hart, something about what drove you to put forth your position with such force? Well, uh, part of it, I, th- I think, is over the years, the more time you spend among persons uh, who are raised in traditions that 
not only presume, but emphasize and, in a sense, celebrate the reality of eternal torment, the more you realize that the stakes are, are nothing less than, first of all, the moral intelligibility of, of Christianity, but also the moral formation of the people who profess belief uh, in Christ. I have encountered again and again persons whose whole moral vision of reality, personal, social, political, reflects to a, to a frightening degree the picture of God that, that has shaped them. Uh, now, that, that's not to say that people who have a better picture of God are necessarily better people. Uh, but mm-hmm. I, I, they definitely start off with <laughs> a better chance yeah. uh, at, at, at a sane moral development. But I mean, I, you know, in the end, I mean, uh, it, uh, I, I, I'm convinced of, of a few simple facts. One, that the belief in eternal torment is something that came to attach itself to Christian confession, but that actually isn't grounded in in the first century witness scripture or otherwise and that uh, th- therefore it, it's already an excrescence on on the gospel as the gospel now I mean you know Jesus taught a gospel that included imminent catastrophe and judgment but certainly not if, if one understands his language and, and is, has uh, approached it in its historical context and reads it in the Greek. He certainly did not have a, 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 any teaching about a place of eternal torment. And the other is that uh, the only versions of the Christian story that don't end up contradicting themselves or creating a schism within the picture of God such that, uh, you know, Jesus more or less came to save us from his father— <laughs> which is the version of Christianity many Christians grow up with without putting it that way to themselves. The only versions that avoid these contradictions and these these monstrosities of reason are, are the, the universalist construals of, of the gospel, such as you find in Gregory of Nyssa, uh, who, I want to point out, is the most successful of the early patristic exegetes of the New Testament, by which I mean he's the one who does the best job of reconciling all the different voices of the New Testament with one another, mm-hmm. far better than, say, Augustine, who had to right. explain away more than he could, uh, uh, more than it's comfortable to contemplate. Well, I just really like the the moral indignation with which you write. And I, I get a sense that it's at least partly fueled by the effect that eternal hell Christianity has on the most vulnerable among us, especially those on the spectrum who yeah. cannot shield themselves from its horror. Now, in, in that all shall be saved, you give some biography of your own experience, and you said you, you heard some things, some stories that featured eternal torment early on growing up, but they didn't have much effect on you. Just It, it, right. it, it just kind of washed off you. But for But for people who are who are especially sensitive might maybe on the spectrum that can be really terrifying and traumatizing well, to them. I, I explained this actually the paperback edition of the book is at last coming out. Um, Yale was in no hurry there because the hardbound edition was selling well enough, I think, but the uh, soft cover versions coming out, I think officially September 7th 
And I've added a preface there explaining what prompted the book in part. And part of it is just that, a story of a a spectrum child, a friend, uh, the child of some friends of mine, was a child at the time, is not now. Uh, the sheer first of all, it, it uh, you know it, it destroyed his faith uh, when he realized what was being, and and ultimately drove his parents away from the church as well. Uh, but I saw I, I know something about children on the spectrum. I was put that way. Quite often, what strikes us uh, who are well. Then again, I'm I'm probably on the spectrum, so I shouldn't say us. But I mean, <laughs> I, I'm just on the more functional end of it. But I, I should say what, what what strikes what they're often called neurotypical people as mm-hmm. um, an oversensitivity or an inexplicable uh, tendency towards anxiety. The part of spectrum children might really be that that they are defenseless against reality at a level. That the rest of us aren't that that they have a more immediate and intelligent and sensitive grasp of certain things and uh, have not mastered or or lack the uh, psychological buffers that that some of us are able to throw up and and use to shield ourselves from even what it is we think we believe. And the reaction of this child to the idea of eternal torment, which seemed to me absolutely correctly proportionate to the to the scandal of the teaching itself, to me by itself indicates that there's something deeply perverse and cruel and stupid in the doctrine, in the in the in the claim itself. What others would see uh, perhaps as uh, an almost neurotic overreaction to a sermon I simply saw as plain moral intelligence expressing itself in a very in a very bright and sensitive child. Another reason that I appreciate the moral intensity, you know, moral outrage, <laughs> I think, sometimes at, at which you write, is that sometimes critics of universalism, Christian universalism, put it down as a heresy but without recognizing how fraught their own positions are okay. with with problems and having been on the receiving end of that it's nice to have somebody come along with some force on the other side and forcefully point out the problems that their position has well here are the rules of the game as they've been established because the uh infernalist position i call it that not actually not appropriately i mean that's just that's it's a term of long standing uh, but that's what I call it. Even if it were meant to be insulting, I would still use it. Uh, um, but but uh, because they think they can claim for themselves the mantle of orthodoxy, those who hold to this view, and because it's been believed for so long by so many that therefore one is not allowed to confront them with the actual moral scandal in the teaching. And if one is a universalist, one is obliged, God knows why, to be hesitant and apologetic for believing that love does not express itself in the torture of rational natures throughout eternity. And the tiresome result of this is that you can never win the argument because you've always conceded the moral high ground to what is, after all, a morally outrageous position. But the thing is, if you violate that etiquette, the reaction is insanely, uh, insanely truculent. Because I think most of those who claim they believe this, claim they believe the teaching of eternal torment, 
have already, at some level they don't want to acknowledge, had to reconcile their consciences to something they know is abominable, degrading, stupid, and cruel, and to convince themselves that, in fact, it's good and radiant and just and beautiful. And they don't like being made to confront, again, the compromise their consciences have already made. They don't like Mm -hmm. consciously being forced so if you challenge them seriously, that's the only way you can break through as to the sheer moral hideousness of the lie that they're, that they're propagating. The reaction is a violent one. And one of the curious things, I'll say more so than I, I realized it would be, uh, those who hated my book accused it of being polemical and fierce. Those who loved it said it was tender-hearted and 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 uh, moral, you know, morally passionate. You know, the completely two different different sets of of, of ears. Yeah, it's kind of Those like on who, the one hand, they they on the one hand, the infernalist said, "I can't believe you just said that," and yeah. then the universalist all said, "Finally, somebody <laughs> yeah, is really I mean, saying." Yeah, and and I and I, I uh, you know, I don't. I'm not taking the. I don't want to praise myself here, but I just think it's correct to, uh, to simply come out and state what should be obvious that this isn't a. It, this teaching of eternal torment is not a small uh, issue. It's not that, you know, you're saying something so grotesquely evil about God. You are embracing something that the moral intelligence of of a spectrum child is sufficient to recognize as perverse and evil and and depraved and telling yourself because you must that this all somehow has uh, expresses the goodness and love of of an infinitely good god it's it's so absurd and I mean, I'll point out that over the years, in an almost insensible way, except among, say, like very hardline Calvinists or those those poor, emotionally thwarted characters who become uh, uh, manualist Thomists, uh, the, the tendency has been towards ameliorating the doctrine more and more, putting the onus on the damned and less on. God, right? You know, uh, saying in fact, it's it, it, hell consists in the free rejection of God's freely offered love throughout eternity, which you know sound is about the best you can do with the doctrine. The problem is, as I point out in the book, this is logically incoherent, and in fact, uh, makes a mockery of any any uh, cogent notion of rational freedom. Um. But anyway, yeah, I'm, I'm taking a long time to say this. What I wanted to say about reactions to the book is that, in fact, no debate has followed from the book's appearance. There has been no debate because there's been, uh, there, there have been attacks. There, there have been uh, exchanges, but no debate because, as yet, there hasn't been a single negative review or attack of the book that correctly states the argument or even correctly states one of the seven parts of the argument. And I find that instructive. Uh, I think it's either because they can't answer the argument and they can't, uh, (laughs) but, or it's just the, the emotional, the emotional ordeal of having to confront what they have made themselves accept contre coeur already, uh, renders them unable to think rationally. 
but I, there's just it's the weirdest experience I've ever had. I've had books that have provoked negative responses before, but there've been negative responses from persons who were able to say what it was they were objecting to. Yeah. This is the only time I've published a book where all of the all of the negative responses have been utterly devoid of any actual engagement with what the actual argument of the text is. I think it must tell us something about the emotional content uh, or the emotional struggle uh, even putative believers in hell have to go through to convince themselves of this abominable nonsense. One of the, I guess, criticisms of the book is that it wasn't, it was more of a philosophical argument and not a, not a scriptural argument. I think there's a lot of scripture that you that you do work with in the book, but then I like to say to people, well, you might want to you might want to consult his translation of the New Testament, which he did for Yale University Press. I mean, that's filled with all kinds of footnotes and information about the. Yeah. The book is a supplement to the translation, but actually, no. Uh, you see, people who say that are not reading very carefully. You know, the, the second because what they wanted. What they would mean by scriptural uh, argument is I go through verse by verse every every time Christ speaks of the Gehenna and explain why this isn't what they think it is. And then it, actually I cover all of that in a couple sentences. There are certain kinds of language that Christ uses, and you can map the language I describe onto each of, of, of the logia. I talk about Paul, but actually that second meditation – uh, because it was not what, what a lot of readers th- thought it would be, ha- has been badly misread. It, it, it is a systematic theology of the New Testament. It makes a point about about two, two eschatological horizons that show up in the Gospel of John quite clearly, and, and, and in Paul, especially in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, about uh, you know judgment as the crucifixion of history and resurrection and and uh, universal salvation as the resurrection of creation. It is, I'll admit, condensed, but it mm-hmm. is a scriptural. It's a scriptural theology. The philosophical framing of that of that part of the book, and that is the heart of the book. I, 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 again, the philosophical framing is simply to show that this reading of the New Testament is the coherent one. But it's all dependent upon that. I mean, it, 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 but for that that second meditation that deals with the scriptural material, the philosophical argument would be would not actually have an object. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, one of the things but, that but, I appreciate... But then again, but, but no, let me just say one other thing. Okay. Having said all that, all those qualifications, so what? I mean, you know, I, 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 it's a tiresome sort of argument, as if, as if, uh, you know, logic, uh, as if rational thought, uh, it can ever be avoided as a criterion for judgment of what is true and what is false. Every person who considers himself a believer who has faith also would tell you that he or she does not believe irrationally just because magically uh, God, uh, you know, beamed faith into his, or maybe some would. But most of them would tell you they have, you know, we have good reasons, experiential reasons, reasons uh, I'm convinced, for, you know, that, that this story is true. Uh, everybody at some point relies on rational judgment in order, in order to, to decide what is, is or is not credible to them. 
And so a philosophical argument, if, if, if the philosophical argument is coherent and they cannot answer it, then it doesn't, it wouldn't matter whether it, whether it conforms to what they expect of a scriptural exegesis or not. If they cannot answer that argument, then they have to yield. And if they don't, then their faith is simply a nihilistic uh, embrace of irrationality. One of the things that I appreciate about your scholarship is that um, is that you're a classicist and you're at home in the in the Greek of that the Greek language of that world and and you've read yeah. widely in that and and I think and this is me included that some of us that we go into ministry or most all of us that go into ministry uh, we go through some training which gives us sort of a cursory blow with Greek. And then we sort of think that we have some facility with it, uh, but really we don't because we don't we haven't really read widely in that world and don't really understand all the nuances of the language. And that's one of the things that your translation does is it it brings it helps helps us to see those nuances better. Well, I, I think that the problem, of course, with seminary Greek is is an obvious one. Is that what you're taught? are the standard translations of terms, and those standard translations have been determined by theological and dogmatic history, uh, much of it from centuries long after the texts were written. So the language, uh, so, so, you know, your understanding of the language isn't grounded in the actual usages of late antiquity in the conceptual world of the time. So, I mean, that's to be, that's understandable. But it is a problem, uh, you know. In fact, I, you know, we all fall prey to this. I'm doing a second edition of that uh, translation, incidentally, oh. because I decided, um, yeah. In fact, uh, just agreed with Yale this week. Okay. Uh, because, um, and in fact, in my Substack newsletter that you mentioned, I, I have an example of how I'm going to change the translation in a, in an article there about Paul on nature and grace. Uh, we even though even though I went out of my way to try to escape the traps of falling back into habitual usages which aren't actually reflective of of the the conceptual coordinates of the language of the time, I too here and there fell into the old pattern. We all do this because we grow up hearing the Bible through the translations we knew from early in life. And even a, even a, you know a classicist with us with a special love of late antiquity uh, can make the for instance um, I think the example I gave is Romans eleven twenty four where I followed precedent and spoke of of uh, the grafting of wild olive paraphysine as being contrary to nature uh into uh, an olive tree that the to which Jews believe uh, to, to which Jews belong according to nature right well that's a mistranslation para doesn't mean contrary right for one thing it means outside but also feces there is not being used to mean nature in the grand theological or philosophical sense that the word would come to have over time, it really there is just being used in its plain literal meaning, which means origin or line of birth or line of descent or pedigree. 
Uh, so in the new translation, I'll, I'll be saying something like, you know, you were grafted on out. You know, if you came from a line that was wild by line of descent, you know, and were grafted in outside of that line into a, into a cultivated olive tree. Mm-hmm. Well, why is that important? Because the other translation, the one I use, was perpetuating the myth that Paul has some grand theology of an antithesis between two principles of grace and nature, but he doesn't. That's not part of that's not part of his conceptual world. That's a that's a, a, a you know a, that's a plain and obvious error. Uh, so we all fall into this trap, you know. Even when we we read the language of condemnation, in, we 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 have a hard time not fitting it back into our picture of a an eschatological consummation rather than, among other things, an intrahistorical catastrophe, which much of Christ's doctrine right. and teaching has to do with. But then, you know, we immediately hear language of judgment as the language of heaven and hell, neither of which is an actual concept in Jesus's teaching. There is the age to come. There is the kingdom. There is the Gehenna, a place of destruction or, or, or one hopes, partial destruction of all there's language of imprisonment but only for a finite term but there is no heaven there is no hell there is simply uh, a set of teachings about a coming reckoning within history cast in terms of a final reckoning in which the age of this world will pass over into a new age of the kingdom and all of the that that picture basically got terrifically distorted uh, in uh, later Christian imagination. And it's hard not to read the distorted picture back into the language, even if we know the Greek. I'm taking a long time to say something simple. Sorry. (laughs) Well, let's let's go through just uh, some examples of translations uh, where where translation can be important. Let's start with Romans 5.12. And that's a that's a famous one. The Dewey Reams Bible works off the Latin translation of the of the Greek New Testament, and it gives a familiar understanding of Romans five twelve. It reads, "Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into this world, and by sin death, and so death passed upon all men, in whom all have sinned." Whereas you translate Romans five twelve, therefore, just as sin entered into the cosmos through one man, and death through sin, so also death pervaded all humanity, whereupon all sinned. And uh, that's, of course, notorious, because that that verse by itself, from the time of the late Augustine, through the Council of Trent and onward, has always been the sole pericope adduced to defend the notion of inherited guilt. And it's based, basically, uh, on a defective translation uh, from the Greek into the Latin, one that... Uh, fails to follow the Greek, among other things, as regards uh, what what substantives the pronouns uh, uh, refer to. Um, and what happened, of course, in part, is that in the Greek, which ends with, you know, ephopont, in fact, let me pull out my Nestle Alland, Nestle Alland, and go directly to it. So don't and Nestle Allen is just the, is just a, a, a sort of a, a standard uh, Greek New Testament, right? It's uh, it's the best 
I, I, yeah, it, it's the best. Uh, th- this is the 28th edition, I think, uh, or is it 27th? Yeah, 28th. It's it's the best critical edition of the Greek New Testament. So anyway, yes, the original is Pantos Anthropos Authentas Marton, Epho, whereupon I translate it all. What did I say? All sinned or all, whereupon all, all committed sin? Whereupon all, yeah, whereupon, so death, so also death pervaded all humanity, whereupon all sinned. Yeah, well, that, that, uh, uh, thanatos is the, uh, substantive death there, uh, before, it's, it's the only, it's, it's the last noun in the sentence before, of course, the, the, the final Ephopantes, uh, and therefore the pronoun also being masculine would generally be taken to a reader as referring back uh, to that noun thanatos, uh, even if only in a general general sense. You know, where but but it literally does mean whereupon, upon which. Uh, so following upon death, all sinned. Well, in the Vulgate, of course, uh, the word for death in Latin is mors, which is feminine. But it, but but then the final, <laughs> the uh, final phrase r- retained the masculine form of the pronoun, and and made the uh, made the preposition in rather than than uh, you know the f of the uh, the epi of the original Greek, so that it seemed to be so that the quo now seemed to refer not to death, which it couldn't. It would have to be in qua if if it had been. In, in the Latin, it seemed now to refer to Adam, and the in made it seem as if it was saying, in whom all sinned. So then we got the doctrine that all sinned in Adam, and therefore yeah. the doctrine of original sin. And but, but, I mean, original sin in the sense that all are fallen, of course, that's a universal aspect of Christian teaching. But the notion that, that, that all personally, in some sense, are guilty— or have an inherited a guilt. It is the reason that's that's a Western rather than an Eastern Christian understanding of original sin is simply the contingency of of the Latin rendering of the Greek, uh, which you know got it wrong. Well, another passage is uh, Matthew twenty five forty six, and that's about the judgment of the sheep and the goats. And the the New International Version has translated it. Then they referring to the ghost. Well, will well, go. well. The new interna- the new international version. I mean, really. So that that is the second worst translation of. Uh, well, it's the worst translation of the Bible in English. It's the second worst translation of the New Testament. But anyway, go on. Okay, so the the new international version has Matthew twenty five forty six reading. Then they referring to the goats will go away to eternal punishment but the righteous referring to the sheep to eternal life. But then in your translation, in your translation, you say, and these, the goats will go to the chastening of that age, but the just, the sheep to the life of that age. So could you tell us more about Matthew 25, 46? Well, there are a great many issues there, of course. One simply has to do with, of course, the ambiguities in the word aeonius, which is, translated as eternal there but but you know aeonius is a is a a vague term most of the time in in the uh, uh, as is the word eon from which from which the uh, uh, adjective comes in the language of the time it can mean eternal but only defectively 
it tends means for a long time uh, for uh, for the length of someone's life it could mean uh, any number of things actually it can mean it can be used to mean uh, divine in the sense of of something having the quality of the the heavenly eon above since there's a there's a sort of metaphysics of time, chronos, the eon, and then eternity in the ancient world that would be very hard to reconstruct here. But also, I'm working from the notion that Aeonius, that, that, uh, and I'm, I'm hardly the first person, I mean, this, this is an old issue in New Testament studies, is that Aeonius is often used in the New Testament, meaning not eternal exactly, but having to do with that age that is to come. Uh, Alam Haba, you know, it, it's uh, not always, I mean, I don't think it's always appreciated that many of these words are, are utterly lacking in um, uh, the kind of conceptual clarity we want them to have. There really is, you know, there are words in, in Greek that, that seem to mean eternity in the proper sense, like aedion. From the uh, from the adverb i, you know, you know. But if you look even in the New Testament, take Mark three twenty nine and Matthew twelve thirty two. These are two versions of the same logion. That is, the, they're telling the same story, but one of them uh, uses the word Ionian, right, okay. uh, to speak of 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 the sort of sin you commit in in uh, denying the action of the Holy Spirit or blaspheming the Holy Spirit and the kind of uh, forgiveness, possible or impossible, whereas the other speaks of it as the age to come. Or uh, take the Nicene Creed, um, which takes from the Apostles' Creed the, the closing, you know, how, how it, the Apostles' Creed uses the language from the Gospel of John and speaks of Ionian Zoe, you know, Zoe Aeonios, uh, you know, often translated as eternal life. The Nicene Creed, which, was, which used the Apostles' Creed as its framework, without apparently any, any problem, changed this to uh, the life of the age to come. So uh, just the very term aeonius, it doesn't mean endless duration. It doesn't mean specifically anything. Uh, but in the New Testament, we have any number of reasons to believe, and among early Christians, that it had a special acceptation having to do uh, with with uh, the olam haba, the age that is to come, as opposed to the olam hazah, this hazah, this age. Mm-hmm. Now, as for chastening there, it is interesting that the language of punishment there is colossis right. rather than timoria, which classically speaking means corrective punishment rather, uh, rather than re- retributive punishment. It comes from a word that originally means pruning or docking, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, putting back into order. Now that doesn't mean that that's necessarily how it should be. I mean, it may be that Colossus, in common usage, could be used of any kind of punishment in a vaguer sense. But I'll also point out that if that verse is following the legal usages of the time, or what kind of punishment is being being threatened, uh, it would be in all likelihood, if not a corrective punishment, it would be death. 
You know, it's uh, uh, so, I mean, you can read that verse from Matthew any number of ways. You can read it as speaking about a chastening in the age to come. You can read it as speaking of eternal punishment if, if you wish. You can read it as uh, meaning a final reckoning that results in the annihilation of the one condemned. Of those three possibilities, though, the second one is far and away the least likely because we know from all the evidence that neither Christ nor Paul had a teaching about a place of eternal torment. Well, that, that, is, that is one passage that's often used as a sort of a proof text for eternal torment. Another one is— Well, the thing uh, is, uh, you know, let me just say, proof texts are, are such a silly way to proceed. I mean, to be honest, you know, language usage as a rule is never precise enough— uh, the, and the conceptual horizon of any complex word with a long history is never clear enough that a single extract, a single pericope, is going to give us a clear picture of how people were thinking. You have to take the text as a whole and see that it's, it's pretty clearly reiterated again and again. I mean, Christ speaks of the Gehenna as a place where both the body and soul could be destroyed. So, Annihilationists, maybe they've got a point. Again, also, though, he speaks in terms of a place of correction, you know, the prison where you go until your debt is discharged and then you're released. And these are two metaphors for the same thing. It's not, uh, you know, hell and purgatory. That's a later imposition. He's talking about those who, who have to, you know, suffer the consequences of their sins. So the universalists also have you know, a, a key to interpretation which makes sense of these verses. Those who insist on, on a hell of eternal torment are, are, are basing that on a later picture that's simply not there in the text and would not, would not have been, I mean, clearly not recognizable to Paul, who has no concept of anything like that. Well, here's, an, here's an, speaking, of, um, speaking of Paul, here's one um, from uh, the NIV again which translates Second Thessalonians 1.9 as saying that the unrighteous will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Whereas your translation of Second Thessalonians 1.9 reads that the unrighteous will pay the just reparation of ruin in the age coming from the face of the Lord and the glory of his might. So that's yeah. that's another one. Uh, could you speak a little bit about Second Thessalonians one nine? Uh, well, it's it's a it's a it's a verse that's actually a bit garbled in the Greek. It's, it doesn't it doesn't have quite the the, the clarity one one ideally would want. Uh, but uh, the the New International Version, of course, will will give you the version that's most in keeping with uh, the sort of evangelical theology that that uh, underlay. The, the translation project uh, that produced that dismal mess of a, of a translation. But, you know, w w there's nothing about, uh, you know, <laughs> there's nothing, there's nothing uh, clearly in the Greek that indicates which way you should read it, but everlasting destruction away from the face of God. The term is alethros, you know, uh, ruin. It doesn't mean annihilation. It doesn't mean absolute destruction generally. It can. Uh, but it usually means downfall. And, 
aeonius can mean in the age. It can mean final. It can mean perhaps eternal. You know, it can mean it can mean uh, something of long duration. Again, it has that vagueness that that I think is is best to understand is simply a cipher for the age to come, for the ultimate disposition of things and what will happen when God puts things in place. As for the the uh, away from the face of God, well, the the preposition there apo can mean away from, but it can also it can also mean by or as a result or coming from. Yeah, coming from. You know, what one has to decide precisely what one thinks it says. Even then, you're not you're not going to be able to arrive at a clear at a clear decision. You know, it's away from the what is it? The glory of the of his power, right? Away from his from the face of the Lord. And well, if you think about it, what does that mean? Away from the glory of his power? Doesn't it seem you know intuitively correct to say that it that it makes better sense to read uh, that as you know, a justice, the king, a judgment, coming from the face of of the Lord, because because that that's that's a figure that's that's common in the speech of the time. You're judged before the face of your judge, you know, or or, or a judgment is handed down uh, before the face of the court, and from the glory or or the eminence of his power. Uh, if you think about it, the language there seems to follow forensic imagery of the time it's simply mm-hmm. saying that that uh, before the face of god and by the glory of his power or by the uh, uh by the eminence or authority of his straight straight you you you, you know the, the sinners will suffer an alethros a downfall a ruin uh a confrontation uh condemnation a confrontation with their own wickedness in the age to come well, that I think that's just a good. That's another verse that shows it's a good example of the the issues that get involved with translation. Just one more, Matthew five twenty two is commonly translated that 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 the person who is called his uh, brother worthless reprobate. The NIV says anyone who says you fool will be in the danger of the fire of hell, whereas you translate that and you say whoever says worthless reprobate shall be liable to enter Hinnom's veil of fire. Yeah, which is what the Greek says. Um, it's, you know, again and again, Christ uh, speaks of the Gehenna. Well, there's a long history of the usage of the, of, of the Valley of Hinnom as an image of divine disfavor or judgment, usually, again, of intrahistorical uh, judgment. I mean, but Christ clearly uh, uses the language of Isaiah and Jeremiah mm-hmm. with frequency, including borrowing the imagery and it's and, and of of unquenchable fire and ever devouring worms, which is just a language of a place where corpses not not just you know not just the soul but the body is fully destroyed because the fire keeps burning until there's nothing but ash. The worms keep eating until all the carrion is gone. That's all it is. It's it's uh, you know uh, the Gehenna then becomes a, a sort of multifarious metaphor for God's judgment in the second temple period, uh, eschatological and intrahistorical. Uh, but it's not 
you know, once again, uh, the the later developed notion of hell is the sort of eternal torture chamber uh, is not what Christ is talking about. He's simply talking about those who, you know, will be cast out, uh, who can be destroyed. You know, he's talking about a, a place where body and soul alike come to nothing. And for him, it's a metaphor of God's judgment on wicked on, on, on wicked deeds. Is it an image of final destruction? Uh, it could be. Many of Christ's metaphors are about things being burned up entirely into ash and destroyed. Or is it just a, part of a, a continuum of metaphors that include others, like being temporarily imprisoned, which uh, are threatening without being specific, right? In the same uh, in this in that same chapter, Matthew's Matthew five, you but, get but, but, both I mean, of there, those, right? But you you have no hell. I mean, there, there is no hell. The, that word should appear nowhere in any good translation of scripture. There are words that uh, in you know in the in the King James and in other translations, words that 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 in fact represent very distinct concepts that end up being translated as as uh, under this one word hell. When Paul talks about you know uh, uh, hell being defeated, you know hell where is thy great where is thy victory and all that death, you know, Hades, Thanatos there, he's talking about the same thing as Hades. Hades is the place of death. There's no concept of hell, just as, uh, uh, you know, and Christ, when he speaks of the Gehenna, again, is, is using this image from Jeremiah and Isaiah of the catastrophe that comes upon those who who, who will not heed uh, God's demands for justice and mercy and, you know, upright dealing and uprightness or righteousness. But they're very vague images. All we can say with absolute certainty is none of them conforms to that later picture, which is basically closer to a pagan picture, a pagan, you know, a, a certain Platonist images of torment in the afterworld for especially wicked reprobates. Well, that what I'd like to do now is move on uh, from your translation of the New Testament to your book, That All Shall Be Saved. And in, in That All Shall Be Saved, you really present four big questions. And so I'd just like you to briefly review your position on each of these questions with the hope that people will take the time to actually read That All Shall Be Saved, and so they can consider your full answers for themselves. And so the first big question you ask is, who is God? And your answer to this question has to do with how, if God is the creator of all that is, then the final outcome of creation is also the final revelation of the moral character of God. This is true. So, Dr. Hart, who is God? Well, I mean, you you know, uh, well, let me take a step back. I have to explain the, the context of the question, because implicitly it's always been understood that since God is supposedly the creator of all things out of nothingness by pure sovereign disposition and and with full foreknowledge of all that will be and all that will happen, that the fate of creation in some way, and the fate of his creatures in some way, is not accidental to his character. It is who he is. We are what we do. And in a God who is himself pure act, you know, absolute pure action, what God does is who God is. 
So classically, a distinction was always drawn that you find in the fathers between God's antecedent and consequent will for creation. Antecedently, before the sin of Adam, and this remains constant for most Christian theology until you get to Calvin, who... Let's forget about Calvin. Uh, that antecedently, God wills the salvation of all, but consequently, because of sin, he wills the salvation only of the elect. And the terms of that election, depending on which where you situate yourself in the tradition, if you're in the West, there's a strong language of predestination, but that has to be, you know, which becomes a matter of contention in Catholic history and in, Protest- and in the Reformation period. In the East, uh, the language of predestination doesn't doesn't take hold, and it's much more a matter of, uh, you know, I guess moral luck. You know, it's, it's certainly not a matter of personal freedom because uh, for most of the Eastern Christian tradition up until the present day, they, uh, the, the, you know, there's still be an insistence that you'd have to be baptized to be saved, and that uh, that uh, you know those outside the reach of, of, of Christianity had very little chance of making it. But still, this division was there fixed. The, 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 what God really, really wants is the salvation of all, but the best he can do is the salvation of those who he saves. I think I, I, mean, I, I demonstrate using game theory, among other things, why that, that distinction cannot be maintained in the case of God. You know. Mm-hmm. So when you ask who is God... The question is that has to be answered, what does he do? If he damns creatures whom he has created to eternal suffering, or if he even risks their damnation according to some sort of stochastic uh, gamble on, 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 on the venture of creation, then he has positively willed an evil, a concrete evil end to certain good and rational natures, which means that evil is part of who he is, not something he allows, but something he concretely and positively does and therefore is. So if you believe in eternal torment, then you believe in a God whose character is either evil or is divided between good or is neither good nor evil but beyond them. But of course, the only thing beyond good and evil is evil, you know, because it's a, because Evil is a privative state. It's the it's the lack of the true good that consists in love and and the intention only of the good. So whatever lies outside the difference between good and evil is simply evil again. So what does God do? Does he save all? In which case, he is the good God that Christians claim he is. Or does he fail to save all? In which case, he's actually worse than the devil. Because the devil is only a creature who uh, had no hand in this great risk of creation. Well, I think that that's to me that that your argument that God is what God does yeah, that's a very powerful argument, and I'm really pleased that you have brought that you have brought this argument to our attention. Let's go on to your your second big question that you ask in that all shall be saved is what is judgment? And this judgment question leads us into the complex world of biblical eschatology, the judgment and apocalyptic language of Jesus, the book of Revelation, the importance of the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So given all of the complexities involved, then let me just return to the basic question and ask simply, what is judgment? Well, I mean, I think that uh, the best 
the most coherent answer to that in the history of Christian thought came from figures like Origen and Gregory, that judgment was the the reestablishment of the good in the aftermath of of the failure of creation and in the aftermath of the conquest of death. But uh, what judgment is then is a rectification, not a settling of accounts. It's, uh, again, 1 Corinthians 15, right, that uh, when Paul talks about the judgment that is to come in the age to come, he's not talking about uh, simple discrimination of, of destinies. He's talking about putting all things, Christ having restored the cosmos, uh, the judgment there, you know, pronounced in and by Christ on the cross, and then presumably again, in another sense, at the eschatological horizon of creation, is a judgment uh, that res- the, whose ultimate end is restoration, putting all things back into order and handing all things over to the Father so that God is all in all, not just God all over all. You're not simply mm-hmm. ruling over, but, but literally God in all things, in all hearts, in all minds, in all natures, in all levels of reality. Uh, so that uh, judgment is restoration, is rescue. And Gregory of Nyssa's uh, On the Soul and Resurrection is one of my favorite texts in this regard, as Gregory's being taught by his sister Macrina about the nature of biblical eschatology. I think there you have a pure line back to origin, unclouded by the later, later legends and slanders that attach to Origen's name. Mm-hmm. But also, to me, it's always been instructive that the picture that emerges there does make a case for 1 Corinthians 15 being the systematic key to the entire understanding of, of, of creation and redemption and, and the age to come. And in a way that, that, that can make sense of all the different voices of the New Testament. Alternative versions of, of the Christian story, like, as I say, you find in the late Augustine, consists to a far greater degree in correcting the language of the New Testament. You know, like, you know, Augustine has to go to great lengths to explain why Paul in chapter 8 of Romans doesn't mean what he says when he, when he says that God elected those whom he foreknew, for instance, or things of that nature. Or why when, when Paul says, just as all men well, you know that you, you, you know right in, the, in uh, Romans five, in, yeah, in Adam, so all shall receive life in Christ. That the all of the first half of that single sentence refers to all humankind, whereas whereas the all of the second half of the sentence refers only to the very pitiably small company of the pre of the foreordained elect. I mean, this is this uh, this doesn't even rise to the level. Of of uh, of a bad joke. I mean, that's that's not exegesis. That's simply denying the plain meaning of the text. You don't find that in Gregory. It's not necessary. I mean, honestly, uh, the the picture that emerges is radiantly coherent. Well, the, the one of the, the things that happens sometimes in the discussion about ultimate judgment is we go to the uh, we go to the last book of the of the Bible, the Book of Revelation. And therefore, it's just kind of assumed that the book of Revelation ends with uh, the lake of fire for everyone whose name is not in the book of life. 
but the but the actual final image in the book of Revelation is that of the New Jerusalem with its gates forever open. Yeah, to all who are outside, right? Yeah, and, and the, the the lake of fire, of course, uh, is an image of destruction of hell, and and I mean it's it's mostly. Um, concerned with the allegorical description of allegorical entities. As for the, those who uh, suffer as a result of not being in the book of life and therefore are outside the new Jerusalem and maybe suffer the, the pangs of judgment there, that isn't the final word. Uh, that's the curious thing about the, about the book of Revelation. Now, my own feeling on the book of Revelation is it doesn't necessarily concern the things that people think it concerns. I don't really think it's a book about cosmic eschatology. I think that he uses that imagery as a grammar for an apocalyptic text on political matters. Uh, and I, I think it's it has more to do with uh, an intrahistorical fall of Rome and the establishment of, of Jerusalem in history as the, as, as, as the center of uh, human life and human commerce. So there's still nations outside the walls. But if you take it out of its context of political agitation and you look at the uh, the eschatological grammar being used, it ends with, as you say, a tree leaves for the healings of the Gentiles, that is those outside whose gates are open, into which all are invited who will come, you know. So uh, even there, the language of judgment uh, is not the absolute terminus of the of the story it's it's a stage upon the way towards the total restoration of creation all right let's move on to the third big question that you ask in that all shall be saved and that is what is a person and this question leads us to consider how it is that human beings reflect the divine image this in turn leads to a comparison between the thinking of augustine and gregory of nyssa and the unfortunate outcome that the western christian tradition followed augustine's ideas rather than those of Gregory. So with some of that as background, then let me just ask you, what is a person? Well, a person is certainly not a a self-enclosed substance. I mean, persons exist always in and through communion with others. I mean, to be a person is to be an act of communion at once, uh, rational and animal, you know, and that therefore what you are, who you are, uh, not not considered as some sort of abstract essence, but who oh, you are. Oh, let me are. just, uh, was that, was that Roland? That is, he's, the... yes, he's calling out Roland. to, uh, he's, he's, he's in another room, but yes, um, sometimes well, I'm, I'm so pleased to have Roland on the podcast. Yes. Well, he's, he's, he's a more interesting speaker than that. Though. Bark, barking <laughs> is the least of his abilities. He's a mimic dog who actually can mimic, uh, human phrases with shocking clarity. And that's how he turned into a talking dog in my, in my writings, because he actually does talk. He actually will say, how are you? And things like that. It's kind of frightening. Um, so anyway, what was the question? Oh, what is a Person. We're just well, talking about what is a, what is a person. Well, you are. I mean, you are a history of relations. You are who you are because of whom you love and who loves you and uh, who's affected you and changed you and altered you. To whom you are bound morally, spiritually, emotionally. You're part of a. You know, Gregory had this beautiful image of you know really is only one human being. You know, the body of humanity whose only true head is Christ, and we exist only within that coherence. But I mean, that's that's a truth. 
that we don't need a metaphysics to to explain to us. We know that, I mean, if your memory of all those you loved were erased, your memory of all the people you've known were erased, would you still be you? No, you'd, you'd be an anonymous uh, vestige of a human being. If not your memory, but the, the, the devotion you felt to them, the feelings that you had for them, the memories that tied them to you were turned into indifference or even delight in their suffering, which certain uh, certain theological models like, say, Thomas Aquinas's would require, uh, would you be the same? Would you actually be the person you are? Would you be any person at all? Or would you just be a tragic vestige of something that was once a person? Well, obviously the latter. Which raises that, you see, that, that meditation, the curious thing was again and again, people misread it as, how could we be happy in heaven if those we love aren't there? Well, that's not the question. That's, that, I, wouldn't, I, that, that, I wouldn't ask that question because, you know, how we could be happy. Well, you know, you know, as I say, a heroin addict is happy when he's high. I mean, I guess God could keep us in a state of idiot bliss for eternity, that's not the question. It's the moral question of would we actually be who we are? Would we, as the persons we are, be saved if it would require that we become indifferent to or even delight in the sufferings of those we loved? If we could actually enter into... And, and, and it's a question not only for the life of the age to come. It's a question for this life. Mm-hmm. Because say I'm told... I, I'm told and I cover this in the preface to the soft cover. Unfortunately, it's not in the hardbound version, but in the, in the new edition of the, or the newer printing. Christian teaching obliges me to love my neighbor as myself, right? Mm-hmm. If I, I'm supposed to love you as I love myself, except here's the problem. If I believe in an eternal hell, I have to accept proleptically the possibility that one of us is going to suffer eternal torment and the other enter into eternal bliss. And the possibility might be that I'll be the latter and you'll be the former, if it's you I'm talking about, right? Jeez, I can't love you as myself, can I? Because I've already proleptically surrendered you to eternal torment in the interests of my own happiness. You know, I, I in, order, in order for me to love you as myself, I would have to find the, the, your damnation to be as intolerable as my own for eternity. Instead, I'm willing to say that proleptically, I'm I'm okay with the thought that however close we are to one another in this life, I'll get off uh, scot-free in the life to come and you'll, you'll suffer eternal torment. And in a sense, suffer it in my stead. You, you, you know, you're the one who lost the coin toss there because it is a coin toss in a sense. And if that's so, then the ethos of heaven will always be every soul for itself. But every soul for itself is not what human, what persons are. It's exactly the opposite. It's what demons are, you know, when we turn well, that's ourselves. One of, that's one of the things that became important to me about Christian universalism was the idea that I am brother and sister eternally to every other person. Yeah. And so we are destined to have a, a common future together in which we will be reconciled to each other and to God and part of God's all in all. And so that affects who the way I see everybody else. Yeah, and again, in this life, I mean, it's, it has to do with your moral understanding of who you are and who others are in this life. Because it, it is an issue of can you love 
another as yourself. I mean, that's a command, right? And yet at the same time, you're being told that you must not love another as yourself because you must be willing and willing to rejoice in, willing to see that other uh, sent into eternal torment uh, while you enjoy an absolutely untroubled bliss in the presence of God. Just that you could even contemplate the division of destinies phlegmatically or, if nothing else, with some kind of serene acceptance means already you have been rendered incapable of the sort of love that you're commanded to feel for another. Well, I, I think that those, that's a very important meditation. I want to keep moving on. The fourth big question that you ask in that all shall be saved is what is freedom? Yeah. And this leads you to question the modern notion of libertarian free will in light of the intellectualist model of free will, which assumes that true freedom consists in the realization of a complex nature and its own proper good. So given yeah. some of this background, then let me just ask you this question. What is freedom? Well, you've just answered it. I mean, freedom is the freedom of a nature to flourish as it is if it's uh, to the degree that it's able, to that degree it's free. That is, uh, a rational nature is free because it can make choices. It can make choices because it has an index of values uh, that transcends itself to which it, it uh, refers all judgments so it can recognize and evaluate and judge and choose. And that could, for a a nature presumably created by God, but but any rational nature consists in a prior longing for happiness, for the good, for the truth, for the beautiful. This gives us our values, and in light of those values, we judge. Even, mm -hmm. and I mean, this is the oldest model of rational freedom, and the only one that makes sense. Because otherwise, if you take a purely libertarian notion of freedom to its extreme, what it means is that you're free because you spontaneously posit an end for yourself and pursue that end, whether it has any relation to your desire for the good or the true or for happiness or for anything else. But then, then that means that freedom consists in purely irrational impulses obeyed purely irrationally. You know, in that sense, you would say that, that uh, a tree falling over in the wind is an act of freedom, you know, it, it, it happens, therefore it's an act of freedom, but it's devoid of rationale and it's devoid of the rational will choosing in the light of an ultimate end. Real freedom is, is just the opposite. It's, it's recognizing, and the more you recognize what it is you truly desire, the end that truly fulfills your nature, the more free you are, the more able you are to pursue that end, the more rational you are. But that also means that the freer you are, the less the less range of choice there is. Because the better you recognize the good for what it is and recognize your own nature for what it is, the more inexorably you'll be drawn to a certain end. It's a free act. I mean, you'll be freely drawn to, to the thing you most deeply desire when you understand it for what it is. It's perfectly free, but but in a, in another sense, it's it's free because you've transcended the need to choose any longer. You've been set free from ambiguity, confusion, insanity, whatever else might inhibit your your knowledge of what you seek. But you know, let's just put this this you know in simple terms. The argument of hell from free will is this: that I could be so resentful of God and the good 
that I would reject him for eternity. I would reject happiness. I would reject love. I would reject the good that most fully fulfills my nature and for which in the depths of my nature I incessantly long just for the satisfaction of rejecting it, even though that brings eternal, unremitting torment. Well, clearly that's not a free act (laughs) because I've gotten something so wrong. I have such a distorted view of reality that I'm not acting freely. I'm acting in conformity to all the things that have made me unfree. And the notion that God would allow a, a rational nature to suffer eternally as the result of you know, confusion and anger and and all all the all the all the uh, encumbrances of affinitude burdened by death, again leads us back to meditation. One, who is God? You know, is he a monster? Mm-hmm. But the other is, if I, I think uh, the the uh, example I've been using of what I mean in in recent in the past year or so since the book uh, the book came out a uh, year and a half, two years, however long it's been out, I don't know. Us uh, from. Uh, the story of the lady or the tiger. Right. You know, I choose the lady. Stockton. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, this is a question. I mean, uh, you, you know, uh, to say that, well, you know, if a person rejects God because, uh, you know, his heart is filled with anger and loathing of God, it's an act of freedom is like saying that, you know, if a lunatic, uh, or someone driven by, by, uh, fierce and neurotic anger at his father chooses to express it by cutting off his own head that this is an act of rational freedom well clearly it's not it's an act of lunacy and as a result and as a rule we understand freedom as being directly proportionate to mental competency you know if you are non-compass mentis if you're so deranged that just despite your father you'll cut off your own head you're not acting in rational freedom and a just and loving God would not make that the final word on your destiny. Uh, but with Frank Stockton's story, yeah, of course. I mean, it just says out if you if you, if you have a, a, a your main character is confronted with two doors, behind one is a beautiful woman, whom to whom he'll be married if he chooses that door, uh, and the other is a is a tiger who will devour him. The question is, uh, is he freer if he doesn't know which door is which, or if he does? Is his, is his decision more informed, his choice more free, if he knows which is the tiger and which the lady? That's a simple question. And I think only a fool would say uh, anything other than, it. Well, of course, knowing gives him gives him the, the power to choose what he really wants, as opposed to just taking a risk, spontaneously choosing in the hope that he gets it right. But if he knows which door is which, what are the chances he's going to choose the tiger if he's sane? Uh-huh. Zero. Zero, right. And that's the same and, and that's the same calculus that you can bring to this question of the free will defense of hell. Because it's psychologically possible to hate and resist God, but that's because psychology is itself a language of ambiguity, affinitude, of confused motives, of of different forces that have shaped and molded us contrary at times to our free will and the results of that. It's psychologically possible, but spiritually, rationally, freely possible to reject the love of God uh, and to embrace eternal torment. No, 
than is not. It's not it's not a rational possibility. It's not a real possibility. It's not a possibility that has anything to do with freedom. And a good God, of course, would not, you know, leave his creatures in such a condition of, of confusion and dread and suffering and loss simply to prove his sovereignty or because he's just, you know, too concerned with their autonomy. Whatever that would mean now. Autonomy meaning being just another name for fate. Okay, we have now discussed the big questions that you address fully and that all shall be saved. There is one thing that you do talk about just briefly and that all shall be saved. You say that among those who pose Christian universalism, it is common for them to assert that universalism was decisively condemned as heretical by the Fifth Ecumenical Council, to which your reply is simply, it was not. Yeah, it wasn't. In fact, it was never even discussed at that council, nor was the thing that ended up. Uh, there are, in the Acts of the Councils, historically certain condemnations of certain teachings associated with those that later came to be called the Origenist Party or the Evagrian Party or whatever. But, the, you know, several things have to be kept in mind. These uh, condemnations did not come from the council. They were inserted later, apparently, because the emperor wanted them to be. They were not certified by the fathers. Even if they were, they condemn only a very specific range of teachings, not those espoused by any of the uh, orthodox or, in fact, recorded universalist fathers. So the condemnations were illegitimate in their own right. Also in those findings, origin is included in a, li in a list of heretics, but that name almost certainly was inserted after the fact as well. Uh, again, not condemned for any particular reason. And if he were condemned, it would be completely irregular because he had been dead uh, some centuries and had died in the peace of the church and, and posthumous condemnation is not uh, canonically permissible. So, uh, you know, no, nothing, it was never decisively condemned. Now, if you're a Roman Catholic, there have been, there has been conciliar language that seems to, uh, to state unequivocally that, uh, that there's, that those who die in mortal sin suffer eternal condemnation. But again, even then you'll find the wording is, is helpfully vague at times. But I can't, I, about that, I, I can say nothing. I'm not, uh, the later Roman Catholic councils uh, are not really ecumenical councils anyway. That's a sort of 16th century institutional fiction uh, that, that was introduced in order to aid in the, in the uh, war of words with the, with the, uh, pro the new Protestant re Reformed churches. But... Uh, Definitely, as far as the genuine ecumenical councils are concerned, there never was such a condemnation. Okay, let's move on then to another uh, way that people sometimes argue against Christian universalism. It's by taking a position called, I think of it as open theism, the idea that God is taking a risk in creation just as good and loving parents take a risk in bringing a family into the world now, not knowing how it will all turn out. But in that all shall be saved, you eliminate the possibility that God can still be God and somehow be forging ahead in an indeterminate creation. And so there you state unequivocally. Well, I mean, I mean that, that's just uh, open theism is just silly. It's not, I mean, it's, it's, it's uh, an ontological and metaphysical impossibility. I mean, either God is the source of being or he's not. If he's the source of being, then he is, you know, not 
a finite being with potential who becomes something he's not. I mean, that's that's a mythological picture of God. And if it were the case, still my meditation, number one, would condemn such a God as a monster, because what's at stake is not the possibility in this life that your children may or may not have happy lives. I mean, presumably that's limited by by the, the final resolution of every story, which is death. Here we're talking about a God who wrote, supposedly wrote into the terms of the contract, the clause that uh, if uh, his children disappoint his expectations, the, the payoff is eternal suffering or even eternal destruction uh, an exclusion from a happiness that those who had the good luck not to disappoint their father uh, will enjoy for eternity. In either case, you end up with the same moral monster. Uh, but this this pathetic notion of of a god who becomes I mean it, it's it's worse than a last ditch argument. It's 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 a, it's an infantile picture. There is no such being. If there is, he's Zeus or Odin. He's not the creator of all reality. He's not the source of all being. Uh, so uh, open theism isn't, isn't an option. Uh, it, it's uh, rationally and morally impossible. Also in, um, in that All Shall Be Saved, you write that unlike the great Hans Urs von Balthasar, I would not think it worth the trouble to argue, as he does, that Christians may be allowed to dare to hope for the salvation of all. In fact, yes. I have a very small patience for this kind of hopeful universalism. Yes. So tell us a little bit about your thoughts about hopeful universalism. I mean, I, I think actually Balthazar was a straightforward universalist who, uh, for you know, for reasons of uh, doctrinal conveniencia, adopted the posture of someone who wasn't absolutely certain. I may be wrong about that, but I think it's pretty clear. But I mean, what 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 what's the hopeful universal saying? He's saying, well, the best outcome would be that everyone is saved. But I can't be sure that God will bring the best outcome about. Maybe He's not able to, which is wrong in principle. Maybe He will choose not to, which would make Him morally defective. It's pointless. If you believe that the, the 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 happiest consummation of the story, the one that makes the greatest moral sense, is is universal reconciliation, then you have no excuse for believing that any other end would be possible if the Christian story is true. Over this entire conversation, by the way, I want to point this out that we've had today. That is the conditional. So if the Christian story is true, if any version of it is true. Nowhere in that book do I claim that, that it is true. You can presume I believe it's true because you, you know, but, but I mean, that's not the issue. The issue is, is a very simple conditional proposition. If it's true, then it, then it has to be true in one of its, in its universalist understanding. If it's not universalist, then it's not a true story, and you should turn away from it. Well, Dr. Hart, I want to thank you for uh, for writing that all shall be saved. I, I, I became acquainted with your thoughts. There was a lecture that you gave in 2015 about uh, creation ex nihilo, and I saw that, and then I found the essay version of that. I just thought that was so wonderful, but it but it wasn't in all in one place in, in a prominent form. And so I'm just thrilled that you took the time to to take all of your thoughts about this and put it into one place that, that so we can have the benefit of that. 
Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you. Uh, I, I hope the uh, this interview hasn't uh, wandered too far afield. Not sure this has been my sharpest today. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, I've been running around like a madman for the week, but uh, I, I, uh, I don't think I have anything to add to the book anymore. I mean, I think the seven-part argument needed to be uh, supplemented with the preface that's now in the in the soft cover because I don't I don't think originally I made the moral stakes as clear as I wanted to and the story of the the child on the spectrum helped me I think oriented but I, I, the book is what it is it's the argument I have to make and if I ever see a response to it, you know, a, a, a negative response to it, or a critical response to it, that actually involves a clear understanding of the arguments in the book. I'll try to take stock of it, but at the moment, uh, that hasn't happened. So I, I guess I'm just going to rest content with it as it stands. Well, I just want to say thank you uh, for so many of us for recovering for us in a modern way a theology in line with that of Gregory of Nyssa and others in the early church who believed all would be saved. And so on behalf of very many of us, let me just say thank you. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.